morning. Um, the Bible reading is from John chapter 18, and it's on 1084 of the Pew Bibles. So John chapter 18, 1084. When Jesus had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Jesus came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor, was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth. They said, Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went in with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You aren't one of this man's disciples too, 
are you? She asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold, and the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews came together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded. If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Meanwhile, Simon Peter was still standing there, warming himself, so they asked him, You aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to grow. Morning, everyone. <laughs> Good to be together. Could you keep your Bibles open at uh, John chapter 18? That would be helpful to me and I presume beneficial to you. Uh, I'm going to pray and we'll get straight to business. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for um, your scriptures and and be with us as we consider them, that we might give ourselves fully to them, not only that we would learn more about the Lord Jesus, but we would love him with all of our hearts and want to serve him with all of our lives. So we pray these things for his sake. Amen. You don't have to think too long or hard to work out why we chose this colour as the background to our series on the Passion, covering the last few chapters of John's Gospel leading up to the death of Jesus. Clearly, this colour reminds us, even at a subconscious level, that the Passion of Jesus is really about his death. It's about his blood. That's why we chose that colour. Uh, And Stu Jansen, our new youth minister, just returned from his honeymoon. He added a kind of crown of thorns as the loop of the P, which is a neat little nuance to the overall. But you get why we chose that colour. Here's a secret you may not have known. This colour red is also my favourite colour in in the entire spectrum of colour. I love it. It's rich. It's deep. uh, It's evocative. You know that cars and motorcycles, they go faster when they're painted this colour. And it just conveys energy, don't you think? And spirit, maybe even aggression, desire. And it looks particularly attractive when it's contrasted with a crisp, bright white. Don't you agree? 
the bright, the, the white, it just gives it, um, you know, more pop, uh, more energy, I think, more spirit, more passion. That's what contrasts do, don't they? Uh, you know, they give things more pop. But what I worked out is you can't contrast this color red with every other color. So a few days ago, uh, I was watching TV and the news presenter was wearing a red top with a candy pink skirt or the other way around and my eyes started to hurt. And I said to Carolyn, I said, can you do that? It don't look right. And she says, no, you can't do that. It ain't right. Although that <laughs> I realize that makes us sound like we're a pair of rednecks <laughs> sitting on our porch chewing tobacco and cleaning our rifles and cussing at teenagers as they walk past. It was a disturbing contrast, uh, deep red, candy pink. You know, it didn't make the colors look better. It gave you a headache, made your eyes start to bleed. Now, as we come to the passage before us today that Glennis has just read that you've got open in front of you, what we see is some disturbing contrasts. Of course, there is the, um, the almost composed, uh, what I'm going to call the commanding submission of Jesus, which is a contrast even within itself. But I want to consider him last of all, only after we see the disturbing contrasts of Annas, the high priest, and his treacherous rejection, and also Peter's tragic audacity. Okay, we're talking contrasts today. As Suzanne uh, shared at the start, we've returned to John's gospel uh, this term and we've spent the last three weeks in John 17. Uh, it is the longest recorded prayer that we have from the Lord Jesus and so we considered it deliberately and slowly because it teaches us important things like the, the very nature of eternal life, which is abiding and everlasting relationship with God. Uh, it teaches us about our posture to the world. You know, we remain in the world yet not of the world, though we have a mission to the world. Uh, and of course, this is on highlighted with that story. It shows us that Christian unity is grounded in the unity of God, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But today we return to the night before Jesus' death. And really, friends, events are picking up pace. And we see Jesus' commanding submission contrasts with Annas' treacherous rejection and Peter's tragic audacity often in quite disturbing ways. So firstly, let's think about Annas' treacherous rejection. And look, I realize that Annas doesn't appear in the story until after Jesus made his way to the garden or the grove on the Mount of Olives, where he was arrested by the Jewish temple guard and a detachment of Roman soldiers. They were probably bust into Jerusalem from their coastal headquarters because it was the big festival week. Soldiers are, I think they're background characters really. Annas, though, described in verse 13 as the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. But it's important to understand that Annas himself had been high priest, the most significant religious figure in the whole land of Israel. From about AD 6 to AD 15, before being deposed by the Romans, and following Annas, no less than four of his sons, and now his son-in-law had become high priest. Okay, so it's really not a stretch to suggest that Annas was like the godfather, like the power broker, the one who, who was really pulling the strings here. And I think that's why the detachment of soldiers bring Jesus to him, first of all. That's why John still refers to Annas as the high priest in verse 19. That's why the official struck Jesus in the face after Jesus had coolly answered Annas's line of questioning and because Annas was the real power broker here, and because the position of high priest was the most 
a significant religious figure in the land, to some degree, he is representative of the whole nation's treacherous rejection. So you might be asking the question, well, what is it that he rejects? Well, most clearly he rejects the, the whole Jewish legal process. I mean, what he did was quite illegal. Uh, you think, in how many ways could you reject the due process of the system? Well, how about this, placing a trial at night, in fact, well into the early hours of the morning, uh, holding a trial on the day before the Sabbath by completing it in less than 24 hours, by not even coming up with a formal charge that might merit an arrest, by securing a conviction on the basis of Jesus' own confession rather than on the basis of eyewitness testimony, which was the absolute linchpin of the Jewish legal process. So have a look with me down at verse 19. You can see that Annas quizzes Jesus about his teaching and his disciples, about his message, about his crew. But in Jesus' responses, he clearly puts it back to Annas. And I think Jesus is he's really saying, Annas, you know the linchpin of our legal process is the testimony of multiple witnesses. You need at least two chumps to say the same thing before you can get a conviction. It's as if Jesus is saying, come on, here's the deal, and you well know it, Annas. I said what I said with my squad out in the open. It was plain, it was public, so you should have no trouble finding the witnesses that you need. But then bang, he gets smacked for his answer like a little kid spitting up their dinner all over the high chair. Yet again, without losing his cool, he reiterates his basic position. If I've said anything wrong, you find your witnesses, it wouldn't be that hard. Don't hit me just because I got the process right. And so Annas has been outsmarted by Jesus. And in all of this, you know, we're looking at a religious leader representing a religion which at that time had lost its moral compass, had lost its ethical core, not to mention a foundational love for God in favour of expediency and power plays really designed to protect their own position. He had treacherously and quite illegally rejected the whole legal process. I won't get you to raise your hands at this, but many of us will have been rejected romantically. Feel your pain. Chances are if you were rejected romantically, you were rejected with a standard set of rejection lines. We're going to go through them right now because I wonder if you understood what the person was really saying to you when they used one of these rejection lines. For example, when someone says, it's not you, it's me, what they really mean is, it's totally you, don't they? You deserve better actually means, frankly, I deserve better. Where two alike means... You're too boring. Where too different means you're too weird. How about this? Uh, I'm not ready for the real thing. Now, come on, what they're really saying is, I'm up for the real thing. It's just not with you. I need some space. That means I would like to move to the other side of the world. Actually, it'd be easier if you move to the other side of the world, but I'm happy to do it in this case. Can't we just be friends? What that really means is, I just don't find you attractive. But if they say, I just don't find you attractive, what that really means is, I don't have the heart to tell you the real reason. But the real reason is really bad. So with each of these rejection lines, this is why I couldn't have a hands up, right? 
each of these rejection lines, there's a difference between what the person is saying to you and what they really mean underneath. And it's similar with Annas here, right? When he rejects the legal process, there is a similar gap. He's not got an issue with the legal process. The process is fine. But by rejecting the process, what's he really rejecting? Is it not the divinity, the lordship, the the unique person and work of Jesus, the very one whom God sent into the world? And not to mention all that has gone on before in John's gospel, the miracles, the healings, the teachings, even within this passage, with his deft and cool handling of Annas' questions, there was more than enough to go on that this was no ordinary man. And so what I think we see, friends, is that his rejection of Jesus was as willful as it was treacherous. And having made no progress himself, he sends the still-bound Jesus to the acting high priest, his son-in-law Caiaphas, in verse 24. But before we move on, I just wonder whether that could be true of any of us here today. That there's a willful rejection of the Lord Jesus. Would you not say that there are signs, like enough signs to go on, that he is the one in whom you could place your faith and entrust your future? And so I warn you as humbly and as respectfully as I can, do not willfully reject him. And I'm going to give you some reasons later on as to why he's worthy of any faith you place in him. So that's the first uh, disturbing contrast. It's Annas's treacherous rejection. The second disturbing contrast today is supplied by Peter's tragic audacity. We saw Annas treachery first, but as the tension builds, and you'll have noticed uh, the tension does build as the scenes flick from inside the house to outside of the courtyard, there is also before us Peter's tragic audacity. Now I want us this morning to consider Peter just a little bit more carefully than we usually do, because I think we tend to think of him as something like a cardboard figure. You know, he's not quite a villain. After all, we've got enough of them in the story today. But I wonder if we think of him almost as like... um, comic relief in a Shakespearean play. Let me ask you a question. If you have ever had good intentions and yet failed to follow through on them, don't you think he is your guy? Especially if your inability to follow through had awful consequences. And if your best intentions, your noblest desires haven't always been matched by your subsequent action You know what that makes you? It makes you a contoured, flawed, three-dimensional human being. It doesn't make you comic relief. And so we might have something to learn from both his audacity as well as its tragic outcomes. Now, um, friends, the last time we met Peter in John's Gospel, it was uh, chapter 13, some five chapters earlier, but it was only a few hours earlier in the flow of this fateful evening. And and there, five chapters earlier, he had done what he was famous for doing, speaking out of his self-assurance, twice in fact. The first time when Jesus wanted to wash the disciples' feet, Peter refused him, chapter 13, verse 8. No, Jesus, you'll never wash my feet. I will not let you do something like that for me. Later in that same chapter, chapter 13, verse 37, boldly he declares, I will follow you, Jesus, forever. I will even lay down my life for you. Here he is again, and he's at it again. uh, As the disciples are there in the garden, the olive grove there on the Mount of Olives, as they come to arrest Jesus, 
takes out his sword, slices off the right ear of the high priest's servant, Malchus, full of bravado, uh, you know, almost swashbuckling in a way. But really, it's an air swing. Put your sword away, says Jesus in rebuke. The other Gospels tell us that the disciples all fled when Jesus was seized by the temple guard and the Roman soldiers. But it appears that Peter and John return in verse 15. In fact, we're told twice in verses 15 and 16, have a look with me, that the other disciple, who was almost certainly John, was known to the high priest. And so he went with Jesus into the courtyard of Annas' house and he was able to get Peter into the courtyard too. And most of the time, most people just focus on the impending denials of Peter. You know, Peter denied Jesus three times. We shouldn't deny Jesus at all. I want you to think, what is he doing there at all? Why is he even there? Surely it's risky. What did he hope to achieve? I wonder if he quite knew himself. Maybe all he knew is that he couldn't leave Jesus alone. And maybe there was some follow-through on his earlier pledges on his best intentions. In any case, he is there, and I'm just suggesting that that's audacious because I don't reckon you and I would have been there ourselves. So it's audacious, but it's ultimately tragic, isn't it? On this cold night, a servant girl thought she recognised him as he passed through the gate, but he denied it. That's one. Again in verse 25, as he's warming himself by the fire in the company of the other servants and officials. Gee, that's risky, isn't it? He's asked again, aren't you one of Jesus' disciples? No, I'm not. He's caught off guard the third time. I, I guess he's just overwhelmed by the events unfolding before him at a precipitous pace. Another servant, in fact, it was um, <laughs> unlucky, hey? A, a relative of Malchus, the guy whose ear he sliced off recognize him in other words a more than interested onlooker makes the connection and peter denies it again it's three and the rooster crowed and luke's gospel tells us peter went outside and he wept bitterly now what would you and i have done who are we kidding we wouldn't have even been there wouldn't have the guts to be there in the first place Nevertheless, Peter's audacity ended tragically that very evening. And Jesus' death would take place just uh, you know, a few hours later. I wonder if for Peter this night was a death of sorts in its own way. You know? it, it was the moment that the Peter of macho bluster and big words died. It was the moment when the, the big intention, the best intentions, the audacious claims that lacked follow-through died. I wonder if what really died was his self-assurance. His confidence in himself just crushed this evening. Because I'm not saying he's perfect, but, but you don't see it emerge later in the Bible. What you see is a man who's gently been restored by Jesus and then put to some sometimes painful use in Jesus' service of getting the good news out to a needy world. And friends, I, I just wonder if we need a similar death in our own lives before we will be really useful to the Lord Jesus, whether whether we need to eliminate any proud self-assurance we might have in our own Christian lives before we're going to be really useful to him. You know, manly people, we're, we're skilled people, we're educated people, uh, we're confident people. Uh, sometimes we could 
uh, rightly be described as entitled people, but we could certainly be described as self-assured. I mean, not all of us, right? Some of us lack confidence and we just need to give things a go and trust God, but many of us could rightly be described as self-assured. But isn't our job as Christians, isn't it to use the God-given skills, the opportunities for education, the opportunities to develop our talents, whatever it might be, for his service while still trusting in him rather than trusting in our skills themselves, the opportunities we've had to develop them, the education or experience that we have had. And then, friends, then we'll be really useful to him. Do you know what I've worked out? I think I've worked out with a bit of practice behind me I can do a decent job of speaking. I can make you laugh, at least on some days. I could make you cry, perhaps. Uh, I I could move you. I could even motivate you in the Christian life without even asking God for his assistance. Wow, how clever am I? How very much like Peter I could be. And so, brothers and sisters, we could ask ourselves with whatever we do, you know, homes, schools, workplaces, in our leisure, as well as our obviously Christian service, am I I doing what I'm doing from a position of humility or does it come from just self-assuredness and pride? Am I serving God in whatever I do? And I mean whatever I do, in his strength, humbly, or am I just leaning back into my own abilities? self-confidently, maybe even self-righteously. Well, the second contrast we see there is, is Peter's tragic audacity, and I think that's where he is. And so we've seen uh, Anna's treacherous rejection of both the process, you know, legally, but moreover his rejection of Jesus. And, and then we've seen Peter's tragic audacity. I mean, he was there. None of us would have been, but he was there. But it ended with three denials both disturbing contrasts, you know, deep red and candy pink, especially when they're contrasted with Jesus commanding submission, which is the last thing I want to investigate today, Jesus commanding submission, which is itself a a bit of a contrast, a bit of a paradox of sorts. Now, I, I say commanding submission because really you sense that at every part of the story, Jesus is in command of proceedings. Don't you you sense that? For sure, what what happens to him is awful. There's never a sense that it has slipped out of his control or that somehow God's hand has fallen from the steering wheel. I mean, I want you to consider even the opening verse where Jesus leaves the upper room with his disciples, heads on down through the Kidron Valley and up to the Mount of Olives to the garden or the grove there. You can sense his appreciation of what's about to unfold in the garden. Even perhaps as he strides past happy Jewish families sharing a late meal in houses, in rooms along the way, completely oblivious to the duplicitous events about to unfold. John, in his telling of the story, he leaves out some of the details like Jesus' anguish in the garden and his disciples' complete inability to support their friend, not because he he didn't think they happened, But he's emphasizing, I think, that Jesus is in command of the situation. Judas is there, verse 2. He's introduced in verse 2. We haven't heard from him for five whole chapters since chapter 13, verse 2. When who was it? That's right, it was Jesus who set him off. 
to do his betrayal, who got the whole ball rolling. You see Jesus' command in the way the soldiers fall to the ground when he announces, I am he, which is, you know, a little bit more than just saying, you got me. I mean, really, he is invoking that name, I am, by which God revealed himself in the Old Testament before he brought his people out of slavery in Egypt. In other words, Jesus is self-identifying as the eternal, personal, promise-keeping God, and the soldiers fall to the ground, such is the power even of his name. They're not in command. They cannot even stay upright. Jesus is in command. You see it again as he calmly asks for the release of the disciples now that the guard has found him. You see it in the way he skillfully answers Annas' line of questioning, even after being struck in the face by one of the officials. But of course, verse 4 makes it explicit. Let's read verse 4 together. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out out I've been to court a few times in my life (laughs) not the way you think I have Uh, I've been to court as a jury member I've been to court to support a friend who was sentenced to life imprisonment I've been to court to support that friend to get released from prison three years later completely acquitted of his crimes and the thing I would have to say sitting in a court at least as a novice onlooker (laughs) is that you never quite know what's going to happen. Never know which way it's going to go until the words come out of the magistrate's mouth. But Jesus knew all that was going to happen to him as he is arrested and put on trial. And he was in command and control of the events even as the situation deteriorated. And so it it might seem odd to talk about Jesus commanding submission, but it actually isn't odd. Because Jesus' submission to the deteriorating situation is entirely within his own command and control. He is actively pursuing the plan co-hatched with his heavenly Father, a plan that would include this arrest, a plan that would include this trial, a plan that would culminate in his brutal execution on a Roman cross. Verse 11. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given to me? The cup is a metaphor for God's wrath that he will take upon himself as he dies upon the cross to pay the penalty for a world full of sin and shortcomings that has been committed by the likes of you and me. He's not leading a rebellion they need to approach with a detachment of soldiers. He doesn't need defending by a disciple with a sword. If he'd have wanted to, he could have called down 12 legions of angels but he willingly submits to the plan that will end in his death. He must drink the cup of wrath that his own heavenly father will pour out. You see, you ask yourself the question, how can we go, how can we go from being his enemies to being seated at his table in fellowship? Only if he drinks the cup of suffering that his father gives him. How could Jesus ever legitimately be described as a lover of our souls, which we're joined to him for all eternity, only if he drinks the bitter cup reserved for you and me. How can the Father's wrath be completely satisfied? Only if Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice on the cross in our place. 
It is awful. It is brutal. It is necessary if we are ever to be on right terms with God. And it is willingly taken because of Jesus' commanding submission. And so in verse 14, it turns out that Caiaphas, who was the acting high priest that year, he was right when he had earlier predicted that it'd be better for one man to die for all the people, although he meant it in the sense of political expediency. It would be better for this man, Jesus, to die perfectly obedient though he was for the sins of all the people who would turn and trust in him. But it only works. It only works if he submits himself to the plan that climaxes in his own death. Deep red and crisp bright white. Makes a beautiful contrast, don't you think? When Annas rejects Jesus, man, that's disturbing. When Peter acts out of self-assurance, his audacity is to be commended, but his inability to follow through, that's disturbing. How might you and I respond to the commanding submission of Jesus so that our lives beautifully set off the Lord Jesus, making him appear in the most wonderful light as he so richly deserves. I just wonder if there is a hint of an answer in the response of the soldiers. You know, these almost background characters in today's story. When Jesus identifies himself as I am the great God from all eternity who never changes, is always faithful to his word and people, they fall down overwhelmed even by the power of his name but they don't fall down in worship what if you and I fell down in worship I mean maybe literally but I'm, I'm talking metaphorically you think about the son who never lost control of the situation submitted himself to the plan of the father that ended in his death what if we submitted ourselves to the son what if we gave ourselves over to his command rather than insisting upon our command in the the spheres of our little lives? What if we subjected our desires, our plans, our goals and our ambitions, the way we pursue our careers, the way we raise our children, the way we interact with our grandchildren, the way we use our leisure time, the way we plan for and spend our retirement to his ways, and his purposes. What if in that moment, and we have them all the time, what if in that moment we really want to go this way with what we say, what we think, what we do, how we react, how we don't react, and yet we know that there is the word of God that is encouraging us, urging us, commanding us to do the opposite or just something different. What if we went this way? You know, when Annas rejects Jesus, disturbs us, but doesn't end well for him. When Peter leans into his self-insuredness, he talks a big game, but he overreaches and he cannot follow through. That's disturbing. It only ends well for him when he learns to submit himself to Jesus using the very same skills, the very same personality he always had with a newfound humility and confidence in Christ himself. Friends, I am suggesting when we subject our desires our goals, our ambitions, our career aspirations, our child rearing, our retirement planning, whatever to him. All those things are going to change. 
They're all going to look different, but I am suggesting it will end well for us. And I'm also saying that our life, your life, will be like a crisp white that makes the deep and rich colour of Jesus' life and his love look as beautiful as it really is. Let's pray to him now and ask him to help us do just that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the commanding submission of Jesus, if that's what we want to call it. Thank you for his willingness to go through with a plan that ended in his own execution. We want to be people who subject ourselves to him rather than insisting upon our our own command of our own little lives. We want to do that so we can be as useful to the Lord Jesus, your great gospel, as we possibly can. And in doing that, we want to make him and his life and his love and his person look as beautiful as he really is. We ask for your help that you might do that in our lives, for his glory, and in his name we pray these things. Amen.